take for a moment, if you would, and consider a place that you have been, maybe elsewhere in the United States, or maybe someplace close to home, perhaps someplace thousands of miles away in the world, or maybe just even in your own backyard. That is beautiful. That you like looking at. That you took a picture of it and framed it. Maybe you posed in front of it with your spouse or with your children because it was such a lovely sight. Maybe a waterfall or maybe some deer or maybe something beautiful else that you've seen elsewhere in the country or the world. And all those beautiful scenes that we like looking at and that God has provided for us pale in comparison to how beautiful heaven must be. And we are longing to go there. And with all the difficulties that we face in this life, of a physical nature, of a spiritual nature, where we have individuals who are struggling physically that we care about, and we have individuals who are struggling spiritually that we care about, we can see where you can be like an individual in the New Testament who says, Lord, please come quickly. Because when this world comes to an end, we get to go home to a better place. But while we are here, we are to make the best of it and do our very best to serve our God. And that's why we have come together tonight to do so. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 17, where we're going to begin in a very familiar verse and a familiar passage and a familiar place in Scripture. Glad you're here tonight. We are going to continue now with our second segment of the study of angels and understanding them a little bit better. I told David that I appreciated his segue in our Bible class this morning, where in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, which was our text, where it talked about Stephen having the face of an angel, and he says, I'm about to tell you what that means, and then he says, I don't know what it means. So, there are so many different things that are true about angels that are still mysterious to us. And it reminds me of the passage in Deuteronomy 29 where it says that the secret or non-understood things belong to our God. And there are things that you and I will never understand. And so I, I, I chose the subtitle of this particular study as being one very specific, and that is understanding angels better. This is not a series wherein we understand angels completely. I can't preach that. Nor can David, as good as he is of a preacher. The Lord can preach that, and we can, as David talked about in our Bible study this morning, mark that down, or the subject down, that you want to talk with God a little bit further about. As with so many biblical topics, there are a lot of things that may or may not be true when it comes to the roles that angels play. Things that people profess, or things that uh, people suggest need to be the case. But as with all things, we as Christians want to be men and women, and we're just going to keep on going and pretend this isn't happening, men and women who know what the truth is. Thank you, brother. And as with all things, we want to know the truth. We are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We are the people who, according to Matthew chapter 5, are doing all that we can to know more and more and more. Okay, we're not going to pretend. All right. We're going to stop Okay, which button do I push? Top one. The top one, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Okay, now we better not... Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Well, good evening. It's nice to see you all tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad that you're here. 
For those of you that are just joining us, you haven't missed anything yet. Of course, some would say you never miss anything when Leland's preaching. It's David where you get the good preaching. But you are concerned about spiritual things, and so you care about spiritual things, and that's why you want to hear the message, and that is always a good thing. John chapter 17 has always struck me as a very powerful passage because it says that we have to search the scriptures, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the fact of the matter is, is we are searching God's word to understand angels better. And we're going to do this over the course of the next six or seven months. As I mentioned in the early part of the first month of the year, January, we looked at an introduction to angels. Tonight we're talking about the roles that angels play, the various things that they do, the functions that they serve, the things that they go about accomplishing in the lives of human beings in the past or perhaps even, even in the present. And we're going to talk about that from a biblical point of view as opposed to a worldly point of view that might lend us to understand things as they aren't actually. So there's four roles that angels play. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't say, well, there's a fifth or a sixth, but there are four that I'm going to highlight in our study together this afternoon. That is number one, they are messengers. In fact, if you go back and you remember in January of 2022 and we started this series, one of the key things I pointed out is what the word angel actually means. By definition, an angel is a messenger. In fact, we talked about the Hebrew word and we talked about the Greek root of the verb or the noun uh, of what an angel is. And both of them have the idea of going out and dispatching some sort of a message. And so those of you that work in a factory or who have experience in a factory or in some sort of transportation industry where you have dispatch, it's the idea of someone telling you where to go, what message to deliver, and the things that you need to do in order to be pleasing uh, to the boss or the mission that you are involved in. And so the scriptures record for us numerous occasions wherein angels came to earth And they revealed some aspect of God's will. Now, God can choose to reveal his will by way of the Holy Spirit. He can choose to do so by angels. He can send a man. He can send the Son of God. He can choose all the different vehicles through which to get his message across. But one of the things that we see in great frequency throughout the Bible, which we'll talk about in March, because this is going to be a sermon all on its own, is the fact that because God did so, so much in biblical times, we want to spend a good 30 or 35 minutes just talking about that. So that's all we're going to say about messengers tonight. I want to talk about roles two, three, and four, which are equally important that angels played and maybe play in some place. You'll notice I, I say may, because again, there are some mysteries associated with angels. And by the way, uh, I've had a number of conversations, at least probably 10 to a dozen conversations with those of you who heard the first in this series, and you've talked about uh, your thoughts, you've expressed not only appreciation for the sermon, but you've asked questions, uh, often which we both agree, I'm not really sure what that means, I'm not sure where that's going to go. Uh, But there is some mystery to this. But one of the things that we can conclude is that rule number two is that we understand that angels are worshipers of God. That's one of the key roles that they've played and that they play. 
The fact is, is we don't know everything about heaven. There's only one way to find that out. And that's why we are here, right? We are here because we're looking forward to heaven. But we want to get there, not just so that we can say, okay, now it makes sense to me, but because, it, number one, it, it beats the alternative. Number two, it's where God is. And number three, it's where the redeemed are. And all those different reasons together tell me I want to go to heaven to be with my father forever. The Bible does, however, teach us that the angels, these messengers, these agents of God are there and that they render worship to the creator. There are a lot of passages that we could go to. I want to look at four passages here just very quickly. And I want to start back where our good brother read for us in the book of Psalms, Psalm 148. One of the things that we pointed out, and we won't go back and reread those five or six verses, but one of the points that we made in the sermon back in January is that according to verse 5, angels were created by God. And we made that point, and I tried to make it very strong, because to argue that angels would be eternal would put them on a level that would be equal to God, and so therefore they have to be created. Now, when were they created? How were they created? By what venue were they created? I don't know. I have my opinions on it. And we can talk about that, but you're not here for opinions. You're here for what the Bible has to say. And again, that goes back to David's point this morning. You may have to get a a big index card to write down all the questions that you have for God on the day of judgment. Or on the day of judgment, you're not going to care about that, I don't think. But once you get into heaven, then you can ask those questions of of our great creator. We know that in verse 2 that angels praised God. I appreciate Roger reading that section of scripture and reading it so well. And it talks about praise him, all you hosts, praise him, all you angels, praise him, the creation. And there are other places throughout scripture that talk about everybody groaning for the creator, Romans chapter 8, and speaking to God saying, you are great, you are wonderful. And let me just say at the very outset that one of the big takeaways and one of the reasons why I think it's so important for us to study this particular lesson on the subject of angels is that the parallel is obvious. Did God create anything else with a brain and with a mind? And the answer is yes. Are they supposed to be worshipers of God? And the answer is yes. So created beings of God whether they be angels in the heavenly host who sometimes have come to earth to deliver particular messages or perform the various roles that we're talking about tonight, or whether it be human beings who do not go into heaven except once this life has come to an end, we have the responsibility of worshiping our God. Incidentally, when we sing how beautiful heaven must be, I wonder if the angels are singing along with us how beautiful heaven really is. And they're singing and praising God for his creation as well and for all the good that he has done. The second passage that I want to go to is a passage that we looked at uh, just very briefly at the tail end of our study last Sunday or or last month. And that is in Isaiah chapter 6 and the first six verses. I want to read those verses very quickly and I want to make three or four quick observations about this particular passage. In Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 6, Isaiah is one of those passages where, or one of those lengthy books where, for whatever reason or reasons, uh, the author, by way of the Holy Spirit, chooses to kind of highlight his biography uh, a, a little bit into the book as opposed to at the outset of the book. 
in, in more detail. He says, in that year that King Isaiah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So he's having this vision. I think we all agree that it's some sort of a dream. It's a vision. It's got to be some sort of a, a supernatural experience. Uh, it's not doesn't seem to suggest that uh, Isaiah died and went to heaven and came back. That's not the case. But he said, I saw him high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, and we identified who the seraphim were. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried to another and said, now this is where I really want us to focus in, because we, we just breezed over this last month. Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in this magnificent scene, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And then verses 7 and following, he says, Behold, this hot coal has touched your lips. Your iniquity has been taken away. Your sin has been purged. And you are now fit for the role of being a spokesman for God. There's a lot that we could say about this particular text, but I think we need to just acknowledge that what Isaiah is seeing here is like perhaps Paul would have seen as the third person uh, in 2 Corinthians or as John would have seen in the Revelation. He sees the throne room of God and that the seraphim are positioned above giving praise and worshiping God. And notice what the angels do. This is very important for us to understand when we think about the roles. They're messengers, but they're also worshipers in the sense that they showed reverence and gave honor to God. And there's so much about the figurative understanding of their wings and what these two represented, what these two represented, what these two represented. But they all seem to have something to do with giving reverence and to God and showing humility in the presence of God. There's a song that was made popular a number of years ago uh, that has, at least to me, a, a decent message behind it when it says, when we get to heaven, when we see God, will we be able to stand? Will we be able to speak? Will we be able to utter anything? We will just be utterly speechless and maybe just fall down on our knees and for the first thousand years just kind of look at each other in complete amazement. And after that, we'll finally have the the wherewithal to stand up. I don't know. It's going to be a magnificent scene. It is going to be a wonderful scene. It is something we want to look forward to. What do the angels do? They cry out in praise to God. They say, holy you are, holy you are, holy you are. The whole earth is full of his glory. Interestingly enough, they did not say that heaven is full of your glory. I'm not suggesting that's not the case, but they're looking down at heaven, it seems to me, saying that the earth and, of course, everything, including the heavens, is full of his glory. But that was the way that they chose to praise. And this praise was sincere and was profound. And there's something that we can learn from that. It is easy for us to worship our God and for it to be insincere 
or not profound. And I, I try to be the kind of preacher that says, I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to me, but we're preaching to each other. Uh, I've been guilty of insincere worship at points in my life where I've just gone through the motion, where I wasn't really thinking. And I wasn't setting out to be insincere, but my mind wasn't where it needed to be. Maybe I wasn't thinking about the words of the song. Maybe the scripture reading was going on, and I thought, well, what about lunch tomorrow? Uh, and and, and maybe, uh, maybe the sermon went a little bit long, especially on nights where there might be something on TV that you would otherwise want to watch that the preacher doesn't at some point come to an end. If there's long sentences that just go on and on and on and on and on. And I'd like to see what happens in that game. Oh, that's right. It's tonight. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is we are to be involved in sincere, profound words. When we come together and we say... Great is thy faithfulness, O God our Father. When we say holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, we are sincerely praising our God. And we are doing it in what I hope is a profound way. In Luke chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, we have an occasion where the angels praised God for his son at his birth. Look with me at chapter 2, and I just want to read three verses here very quickly here. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the things that come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. If you were to just read verse 14 and not give any credence to the context in which it is found, one might assume that that's just people talking. Here you have people, yes, who are going to be praising Jesus, but you have angels who are involved in saying, this Jesus is great and worthy of praise at his birth and certainly throughout his life. Well, there's a fourth passage that I wanted to talk about when we think about worshipers of God, and and you guessed it, we are at some point going to have to go to the book of Revelation, and I say have to, uh, not because it is a bad thing, uh, but because it's a requirement that we look at these powerful passages as found in Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, for example. I want to read just uh, three or four verses here. After these things I looked, John says, and behold... A great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then notice verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne. And what did they do? They worship. So there's a noun and there's a verb. I'm smart enough to figure that out. The, the noun is angels and the verb is worshiped, right? What are the angels doing? They're worshiping. And notice what they say. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, if you were to read verse 12 without the context, you might assume, well, that's a congregation praising God. Or that's the church at uh, uh, Ephesus uh, singing some praise to God. 
These are angels saying to the Lord, you are great and worthy of praise. And so what's happening here is that John the Revelator, the one who's revealing this message from Jesus, is providing us with a picture and the redemption that comes to those who serve God faithfully. The angels worship. The angels bow. They do the very things that you and I do when we come together on an occasion like this. And they also, notice what they do, they confess God as being God. Notice the three things that angels do when they worship. They worship, they give him awe, they bow in reverence, and they confess God as the creator. I think there's a parallel to the way that you and I come together and worship our God. We are reverent in worship. We bow before him in prayer and we confess him as our God. And I would conclude, at least I think we can conclude safely, that angels are still today, so many thousands of years into it, and however many thousands that is, I don't know, are still in active, enthusiastic worship of our God today. So we come together as brothers and sisters to praise our God and worship Him in similar fashion as the angels have been doing now for quite some time as well. Let me share with you a third role that sometimes we may not think about, but this is one of my favorite roles that angels play, and that is the role of being warriors or deliverers. They are individuals or beings created somehow by God, and we see them as oftentimes executioners of God's righteous judgments. We use the word executioner usually in a negative sense. But in, in many ways, uh, a word could be used, they are executives. They, are, they have been chosen by God to go and to do his bidding. When you think about this, probably your mind goes back to the book of Genesis. And it goes back to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah provide a perfect case study. We don't have the time to go through and read all of 17, 18, and 19 to get the full picture of what's transpiring here. But here's one of the things that we could point out. I want to go back to Genesis 18, and I want to read maybe three or four verses here from 18 and 19. If you want to read that text on your own at some point this week, I encourage you to do so. But in chapter 18, very late in chapter 18, beginning in about verse 20, notice what is written. Chapter 18 and verse 20. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see. There's another example of God going and seeing, just like David talked about when he came down to see what was happening in the plain of Shinar. As, he, as we talked about this morning, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against his company, and if not, I will know. And the men, verse 22, turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Here is one of those occasions where if we go back to the earlier part of Genesis chapter 18, which we read back in January, and we talked about the angels that made an appearance and that play a significant role. God separates the angels for Abraham so that they can go toward Sodom. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, what happens immediately upon entrance into the city? Well, let's see what it says here. 
where the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. By the way, it's my understanding, and we may have talked about this in January, that the bowing in which he is uh, engaged in here is a cultural bowing and not a religious bowing. Uh, not a, because one of the things we talked about, you remember back in January, is that angels who made appearances on earth, they were not known as being angels when they made those appearances oftentimes. Sometimes they were, sometimes they were not. And we'll talk about that more as we develop our study tonight, as well as the rest of 2022. So what happens then if you drop down to about verse uh, 8? This is a very uncomfortable section of Genesis 19, where it says, See now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you. You may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. This one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. We will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to breaking down the door. Then in verse 10, and there are different reasons that are beyond the scope of my understanding why the words angels and men get changed back and forth in this text. You can make some arguments as to why that's the case. But notice what happens then in verse 10. It says, The men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. The angels are the ones who first pull Lot back to safety from the mob outside of his house. Then in verse 11, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. They're the ones that strike the mob with this uh, blindness. And then notice what happens in verse 12. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever it is, take them out of this place. For verse 13, we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The angels now identify themselves. We are not just mere men, but we are messengers from God. We are worshipers of God, but we are warriors for God. And we are here and we are going to destroy these cities because of what has happened in the sight of the Lord the great God of creation. Then notice what happens in verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his son. He says, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. You can just imagine this sad scene unfolding and how ugly and how treacherous it must have been. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, you know, uh, Mrs. Lot gets a bad rap for turning back, and she deserves it. In fact, Luke, or we find in the Gospel of Luke where it says, Remember Lot's wife. But do you ever notice that Mr. Lot himself lingered? Sometimes we ourselves linger with sin. And find ourselves consumed by it and attracted to it. But it says, while he lingered, the men, who are the men? Verse 16, it's the same men in verse 15, rendered as angels, 
the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. The angels are the ones who are responsible for physically bringing Lot and his wife and his daughters outside of the city. That, to me, is spectacular to think that that's what angels were doing so many thousands of years ago. Well, there's so much we can say about that. This is not a sermon on Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels and Lot, just a, a, a little vignette of the angels and their role as warriors. More could be said about that, and we can do that at another time. But I want to take just a couple moments to give you a second example that may have already come to mind to you in the Old Testament. He's, like, I, I, he's going to be talking about the donkey, right? He's got to talk about the donkey. And, you know, long before Shrek came along, there was a talking donkey that appeared in the Bible. And so let's talk just briefly about Balaam, who was confronted by a weapon-bearing angel. In chapter 22 of the book of Numbers, and by the way, if this strikes you as interesting, uh, the book of Numbers, uh, be sure to stay tuned Wednesday evening because David's continuing, David Delk is continuing to do a, a great job on our study of Numbers. But this is one of those occasions where you have something very spectacular that happens. And I'm not going to get into the details of Balak and Balaam and the message and the donkey and all those particular things. But notice, if you would, down in about verse 23. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. Sometimes, sometimes animals are a little bit smarter than us as humans. Not always. Sometimes they know things that we don't know. There's someone there. I'm not going that way. And so what does Balaam do? He says, bless your heart, donkey. No. Balaam, in verse 23, struck the donkey to turn her back into the road. And the angels of the Lord stood on a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and the wall on that side. Verse 25. When the donkey saw the angels of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And then, verse 27, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Now, so many different underlying threads in this particular story. You have the poor donkey, you have poor Balaam, you have poor Balak. I'm not sure you argue poor to all that. But the donkey reacted to an angel in his way. While all that is happening, Balaam eventually will fall down in fear at the sight of the angel. Where it says in verse 31, <clears throat> The Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. I wonder if he ever apologized to the donkey. That's my question. It's one question I have. But a lot of questions I've got about this particular text. But the bigger point here, when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, when you think about the angel here holding a sword, scaring the donkey, and then making it so that Balaam says, whoa, I am so sorry. I, I overreacted to my donkey friend. 
here is this. And please, uh, I wasn't trying to be flippant in this, but sometimes we think about angels as being cuddly little children, winged beings that are very pleasant and docile. But here you have angels who are wielding swords, angels who are rescuing people, making people blind, who are destroying cities. Angels are not to be messed with. Because after all, we said they are messengers of God, they are worshipers of God, but they are deliverers or warriors of God. And when God gives angels messages of, of judgment, and he says, I want you to go and execute that judgment as my warrior, look out. Because bad things are going to happen if you're on the wrong side of the story, if you're in the wrong group of people. Well, let me suggest to you that there's a fourth and a final role that we need to appreciate here very briefly, and that is the role of ministers. Now, someone said, well, uh, I didn't know that uh, angels stood up and preached. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about, right? And you're as good Bible students already understand where I'm going with this. By definition... To minister is to provide assistance or care with others. And so, by definition, we are all ministers. Those of you that give rides, those of you that fix meals, those of you that write cards, those of you that make phone calls, those of you that send text messages, those of you that look out for the benefit of others, those of you that serve, you are ministers. Now... This is certainly the case with angels, and there are a number <clears throat> of different examples where that has transpired. Uh, the men's class recently just had a study on Elijah, and Brother Dan Duggan did just, and all of our men are doing an excellent job in that study, but did an excellent job of talking about Elijah. And one of the things that he talked about in that particular study was how uh, angels came and ministered to Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 19. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk much about that because a good third of the congregation just had a really good dose of a study of Elijah, but because time would fail us. Let me just share with you maybe five verses from, uh, from, from 1 Kings chapter 19 that just, just to give you an idea of where we're going here. It says that <clears throat> Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with his sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me... Now, these are false gods, right? But let the false gods that I honor and worship, let them do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at about this time. So Jezebel vows to kill him. And, and, and Jezebel, uh, for all of the bad qualities associated with her, she means what she says. She's going to try to do everything she can to get the job done, the mission to protect herself, to protect the kingdom, to protect her husband, uh, whatever the case may be. Well, Elijah responds in a way that would be fairly predictable for any average human being. And that is, he's fearful. You can even argue, and there's different ways of reading this particular text, you could even argue that he's a little bit depressed. Because he gets to the point in verse 4, he says, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. 
for I am no better than my father. See, there's a couple different ways of reading that, but I, Elijah's not in a good headspace right now. I think we can all agree that he's a little bit fearful, or a lot fearful, of what could happen. And so God could have just come down in a message by himself. God could have delivered a prophet. But instead, what he does in verse 5, as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. He looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And no, it wasn't angel food's cake. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Notice two different times the word angel is used here. Two different times where the angel is here saying, I'm here to assist you. I'm here to comfort you. I'm here to minister to you. God could have chosen any way he wanted to provide assistance to Elijah. He chose an angel to do that particular job. And so God sends the angel to help. What about in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 22? Remember when Daniel was to escape death? Who was it that came and rescued him? He said the Lord. And I, I, yes, that's true. But by what way did God choose to provide that assistance? He did so with an angel. Or this is not just an Old Testament concept. All the way back in the book of Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Providing for Peter's release from prison. And then, particularly, <clears throat> with Jesus in his ministry and his life. Think of all the different times that angels play a role in the life of Jesus. And these may be different angels at different times. They aren't identified. But more is going to be said on that subject. as We're going to talk specifically about Jesus and angels. Let me conclude with this. And that is something I gave away very early on. And that is one of the reasons why this matters so very much. This is not intended just to be an academic study. And I hope that it's coming across with some applications and parallels for the way that we live. But remember that the Hebrew writer describes us in relation to the angels in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, and elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. And indeed... We share some things in common with angels. You say, well, I've never thought about it. Well, I'm asking you to think about it. Are we similar to angels in some ways? We've already addressed that we're created by God in some fashion. But consider, if you would, these four takeaways. <clears throat> Number one, we are messengers for God. Now, we don't get to determine what the message is. We are the ones who take the message and share it with others. But the only way that others are going to hear about the gospel is if we tell him, we are the only gospel the careless world will read, we sometimes sing. Angels are messengers too. Secondly, we are worshipers <coughs> of God. So going back to the application that I made early on, and that is how enthusiastic are we with worshiping our God? Are we more or less enthusiastic than we are of the angels? And then thirdly, we are warriors for God. Think about that. Now, we don't go down burning cities. We don't go down attacking places. And we don't do all those things. 
But are we to execute for God? I'm not talking about in a negative sense. But yes, we are individuals who are supposed to be defending the gospel as part of what we do, as part of what we say, as part of who we are. We are warriors for our God. And think about that word defending, that we are defenders of God. And then the fourth and the final thing that I think it's important for us to appreciate is that we are ministers for God. And that's not just true for those of us who stand in a pulpit like this. It is true for all of us who are servants of our God. I set out that we are not going to understand angels completely, but we are going to understand them better. And that's what we're trying to do in the course of this study together tonight. And Lord willing, as we progress through these studies, we'll talk particularly about the different messages of God in the past, Lord willing, in March. How are you doing in your service to God? Are you similar to an angel? I've never thought about that before. Enthusiastic in your worship? Reverent in your praise? Thinking strongly about the place that you have in creation as being someone that God recognizes? We would welcome the opportunity to help you to become stronger if you can uh, stand uh, a dose of biblical teaching. That's what we would give you. <laughs> that's what helps all of us. And we would love the opportunity to be of assistance to you. If you're not a Christian, we are encouraging you to be baptized to have your sins washed away. We'd love for you to make that commitment tonight. If we can help you or encourage you in any way, we'd love the opportunity to assist. Let us know while together we stand while we sing.